Hi there, it's Tim Lou from Foolproof here. Um, today's guest on UX Strategy, Thinking and Doing, our video series on experience design and experience design strategy, is Jim Kalbach. Jim Kalbach is currently the head of customer success at Mural, a cloud-based collaboration tool that, uh, that we're huge fans of here at Foolproof and we're using with a number of global clients. He's had uh, design leadership roles at organisations as diverse as eBay, Audi and Sony. And actually significantly, he's the author of a couple of my go-to references in terms of UX and, um, and design strategy. Uh, and last year published uh, Mapping Experiences on O'Reilly in 2016. So it's with great pleasure that I welcome Jim Calbach. Hey Tim, thanks for having me. Oh, it's, it's an absolute pleasure to see it. Um, hopefully, I'll get to see you later in the year in Boulder. Oh, you're going? Yeah, I should. I should be there. Yeah, oh, that would be excellent. Yeah. So, so Jim, this this series is about um, experience design and experience design strategy, and it's called thinking and doing. So, we're interested in um, how leaders in sort of global leaders in the practice of experience design strategy, how their thinking has evolved over the last few years. And actually, sort of, we're interested in actually in the field. What are some key lessons that they've picked up around actually doing uh, the, the strategy process and delivering strategy and implementing strategy in organisations? So the first question that I've been asking um, all our guests is: so if you had to describe experience design strategy or UX strategy to someone, uh, how, how would you do that? Yeah, sure. Um, it, it, it's a tough question, and you know, defining the damn thing is always a can of worms, right? Um, and people have different definitions. I think part of that has to do with the squishiness of the terms themselves, strategy and UX. I mean, you can ask, what is strategy? What is UX? And you put those two together, you don't necessarily get more clarity. Um, but um, you know, for, for me, um, I, I think UX strategy is. Um, is uh, is uh, is a is a component that rolls up. It, it, if you think about strategy, is kind of cascading down. It's a component that rolls up and supports a, a larger superordinate strategy. Um, but it's really about looking at um, the UX. I think I think it has two two kind of components to it. One is looking at the UX capability. So looking at the, the team, the the processes, the capabilities. Um, and how that then delivers um, a user experience uh, all in a way that is congruent with what the business or the business unit is trying to do, as well as um, other superordinate strategies, like there might be a brand strategy or product strategy that, that you're trying to support. So in, in that sense, I mean, I think UX uh, strategy is a, is a supporting strategy that rolls up. Yeah, I was going to say it's interesting. I think when we were first at the UX Strat conference in Atlanta many years ago, most of the frameworks were really about what should we do? But actually, in the last six months, Foolproofs received a number of UX strategy briefs which were mainly about uh, capability, organisation, process. It's related to maturity and culture, really, about the organisation. Um, and, and so, I guess... Um, uh, one of the one of the things that uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the series, Jim, is I think more than um, any other person I've spoken to or sort of I know in the sort of space around experience design strategy, 
has been your, you've reached into business strategy thinking and really thought about how does that apply in design. So that's been really kind of a powerful thing for me. And there's a, uh, I've seen you speak on a couple of things like uh, jobs to be done, you know, sort of the Craig Christensen uh, jobs to be done methodology and how that applies to design. And same with this idea that Mike, if Michael Porter's sort of latest thing about shared value. I guess, I guess what made you do that? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to the point that I just made that, you know, strategy cascades down in an organization. There's a corporate strategy, business unit strategy, product strategy. You can even go down to, the, you know, your own personal strategy, right? So if we, if we view uh, strategy as a cascading um, kind of uh, dynamic phenomena inside of an organization that moves from one level to the next level, that all has to be aligned. Um, and I think more and more what we're seeing is um, kind of a, a tectonic shift um, in, in business strategy um, that is focused more and more on the customer and the user. Um, so that is now core to the strategy, which I think is an opportunity for design and UX, that we're now not just um, contributing to, uh, you know, delivering a, a, a product interface, but um, looking at the customer in a holistic way is core to the strategy, uh, to the company strategy, which it should be, actually. And to some degree, you know, I feel that, that UX and a lot of motions around things like design thinking in organizations are actually filling in a gap that probably shouldn't have been there anyway, that, you know, why, 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 weren't, why aren't businesses for the past couple of decades uh, why haven't they had, uh, you know, customer centricity at the core of their strategy? Um, so I see, I see UX strategy as a s subordinate strategy to company strategy, but we're moving up and the two may merge so that the, the notion of UX strategy just kind of goes away because it's already contained in the company strategy. Absolutely. I mean, and certainly my, um, my thinking has really evolved from... Uh, I'm a top. I mean, actually, I said my sort of uh, starting point for strategy is very top down. You know, so what? What's the purpose of this company? What's their mission and vision? And so then, how does that have to manifest itself to a customer? And actually, where is that going to? Are they, do they want to access different customers and different audiences and segments in the future? Is their offering proposition? Does that actually? To stay relevant, does it have to change or become something different, even though they're doing the same thing? And this is what jobs to be done is really interesting to me, because jobs to be done is, I think the example that I sort of when I first read about it was if Canon thought what they were doing as a company, yeah. were they produce? Yeah, sorry, certainly Kodak. Kodak's, Kodak's the, the the example, but I think Canon have been quite good in terms of um, taking this kind of two types of Photography, really, one which is sort of instant, spontaneous, and which is the kind of the phone is sort of become synonymous with that. But actually, there's still a, a type of photography which is about artistry and you know the level of quality and whether quality and actually what it needs to be still needs to sit in something like a DSLR. I guess some. How did you discover jobs to be done and actually how did you start fitting that into design? Yeah, I came across a topic, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, uh, in particular through, you know, the writings of Clayton Christensen and then uh, Tony Olwick as well, too, kind of a Harvard Business Review crowd. 
um, Clayton Christensen, of course, at Harvard Business School. Um, but it was in uh, you know his book, The Innovator's Dilemma, and then the follow-up book to that, The Innovator's Solution, in particular, chapter four of that second book, focuses a lot on jobs to be done. And it hit me like a ton of bricks because the cause that I had been fighting for um, was you know human-centered design, customer centricity, looking at human needs. And here we have one of the re- most respected business leaders, thought leaders in the world, um, talking about human needs being at the core of a business model, being at the core of a company strategy with um, you know, uh, his notion of disruption. Um, and I, I mean, for me, right away, it was like a, a light bulb went on and I said, hey, wow, this is, this is what we're doing. Why aren't we contributing to these conversations yeah. uh, at a minimum, at a minimum contributing to the conversations? And it seemed like there was it seemed like there was a lot of similar ground in the way that business thought leaders, you know, like Tony Olwick and Clayton Christensen and others were talking about jobs to be done. And what I had already been doing for you know, 10 years in my career as a UX, um, a UX designer. Um, so I just I just saw opportunity and um, trying to trying to point, at a minimum trying to point get people in our field aware of uh, this this language and these principles that business people are talking about and how we can potentially directly contribute to that and in, since then I've latched onto the concept of jobs to be done and um, trying to trying to claim it as a, as a UX uh, tool as well too so that we we close that gap and like I said you know at, at the beginning that. Um, the, the notion of customer centricity and you know start with the human goal uh, at, for your business, not just for creating a, a design of a product, but your business starts with a human goal and articulating that and understanding that and reach, researching that and things like that. Um, those are the things that we do well. So therefore, we should be able to contribute more directly to the business strategy. Um, and that's that's really that's really um, uh, kind of my attraction to to jobs to be done. Is that that that's just really that's really cool. At the heart of one of the most important business theories, disruption and disruptive technologies, is the notion of human needs. And who's better poised to understand that than us? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I've had a few moments like that where I've sort of read a business text and thought, <laughs> that's a straight, yeah. straight use, it's almost a direct use of actually a methodology that we, we would describe. Yeah. I, I think there are other um, uh, business thinkers and writers and, and speakers like Roger Martin, right. certainly Porter recently that I've, I've, I sort of... I mean, who, just for the, for the sake of our sort of viewers and listeners, are there sort of business... Uh, techs and and thinkers that you would suggest people seek out. Right. Well, I mean, the two, the uh, Clayton Christensen and Tony Ulwick, I think, particularly for the topic of jobs to be done. Um, for me, Roger Martin, um, it had just really uh, kind of clarified my thinking on strategy. Um, whether it's right or wrong, I don't know, but I have a I have a better understanding of what I want strategy to be in general, in the abstract sense, from Roger Martin, in particularly uh, his book, um, 2014, I guess, um, Playing to Win, uh, lays out a really good uh, framework there. Um, But other folks, like um, Henry Mintzberg uh, wrote a book called Strategy Safari, which is kind of dense and almost confusing, Um, but uh, he has has a lot of other writings as well, too, that I think... um, are accessible and, and influential. Um, just a side note on, on Henry Mintzberg, he wrote an article in, in 1986, I believe, 
where he actually brings up the notion of emergent strategy. So we have this, I think sometimes strategy is put up, it's kind of a paper tiger almost, where people say, well, you can't predict the future, therefore you, you can't have strategy. Um, but he, um, like, there, no, no one person can stand up and say, this is the direction the company is going, and I'm 100% certain of that for the next year or however long your strategy, uh, your strategic horizons are. Um, and, but, but he, he says way back in 1986 that strategy is both, um, it's both um, you know, about intent and, a, and a, um, a specific intent, but it's also emergent, that you can have intent, intent but change, um, change courses as well at the same time that those two things um you know emergent strategy and a, and a and a defined strategy um aren't aren't dichotomies it's not one or the other and a lot of people talking about emergent strategy these days particularly from the lean uh, kind of side of things um as if that's that's the alternative to um a defined strategy but the but he you know in 1986 he was saying that, no that's actually the two sides of the same coin that you have to have a defined strategy but you also have to let it emerge as well too so people like henry mintzberg i think um i would recommend uh, folks read as well too uh, last one uh, uh, robert rummelt wrote a really good book uh, good strategy bad strategy yeah. uh, and he he at a very abstract level he defines what strategy is and uh, some really good uh, thinking there on that one Oh, that's really helpful. I think, I mean, actually, I'd love to talk about this um, this idea of is design the thing that creates a kind of circle which is defined strategy and emergent strategy. I guess did, did, could you talk to that a bit? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily design. I think it's a design thinking mindset. Uh, and I think that's, the, by the way, another contribution that design brings to the business strategy table is the fact that strategy is creative and strategy is emergent, and you need to <clears throat> have an experimental mindset, an open mindset as well, too. Yes, we defined our strategy, but as signals come back in from the market, whatever that might be at the, you know, at the highest level or at you know, a lower level like a UX strategy level, um, as those signals come back, you may have to react and change. That doesn't mean you need to change your direction completely. That you know, with with the notion of an umbrella strategy, you might, still might have um, kind of direction set. But within that direction, you allow yourself to react as well too. So direction and you know, uh, direction and reaction are both possible at the same time. Um, and I think designers bring that mindset naturally um, to, to the table as well too. And I do, I, I do agree with those people who say that, you know, a business leader can't, you know, stand up in front of the company and definitively say where they're going to be in, in five years or even three years or even one year, that if somebody says that, that's, this is where we're going and we're not going to change our course. And I know that's the answer. Um, don't believe them. <laughs> um, kind of that kind of thing. And I think that's, that's a designerly mindset that we bring to the table as well, too. So it's not just our skills, understanding human needs and things like that. It's also the mindset that we bring. And I think that's, you know, the cover of the Harvard Business, Business Review at the end of 2015 there had a, a thing on design thinking. And I think the kind of the point of that was about the mindset that, that businesses need to have these days is a designer mindset. Absolutely. I mean, one of my clients at the moment is is really sort of, maybe slightly late to the party, but has drunk the design thinking Kool-Aid. And it's, it's incredible to see how they talk about it now in terms of, trying to elevate it as a kind of a, a, a mindset and a way of thinking as opposed to a process. It's very encouraging. Right. Very encouraging. That, that's, that's great. The, 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 other, the other sort of area that I'm 
certainly where my thinking has moved on to is the idea that where strategy used to be held in PowerPoint decks and conceptual models is actually that, and this is a bit of a, a bad pun, but the idea that you could help an organisation experience strategy. So strategy is not something that you read and try and intellectually understand, but that you could immerse yourself and experience as a customer of what, this is what the future is supposed to look like. Right. And, where, and this is where designers and people who make things should be really uniquely positioned where the world's becoming a lot more unpredictable if we say this is our intent but actually it's really the experiments around whether that's right or not are going to tell us whether that's right i sort of linked to this sort of this emergent strategy thinking is actually we have to make things we have to make things to understand for people to actually understand what the strategy is. I mean, is that, does that kind of chime with you in any way? Oh, to, oh totally. Um, and I think that's where strategy gets a bad name, that, um, you know, a few guys, and it usually is guys, uh, men in a company, go on a strategic offsite, which is kind of a joke, and they decide the direction of the company for the next year, two years, five years, whatever. And then they come back to the, to the company, and in a PowerPoint deck with bullet points, they say, here's our strategy. Now go execute, and then you never see that PowerPoint again. They don't. They don't talk about it. You don't know if anybody has buy-in, and then six months later, everybody's wondering why the implementation of that strategy is off track. Um, and I, so I think I think strategy, this notion of like a closed box uh, kind of uh, strategy, is 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 broken. Um, so I don't think strategy is broken. I think the practice of strategy is broken because strategy needs to be inclusive. Um, strategy needs to be creative. And that's why you see frameworks like the business model canvas and um, a lot of the work that the company Explain, I don't know if you know Dave Gray's Explain company, um, about you know activating strategy, getting buy-in around strategy, things like that. And even you know to some degree the, the little uh, st um, strategy blueprint canvas that I created was, um, I think, a step in that direction to say, well, strategy is what we all do as a team, as a company. Strategy is creative. Strategy needs buy-in from everybody, right? So kind of opening up this, this closed-door nature of strategy, I think, is, is a huge part of strategy moving forward. That is something we all create. It's something that we all own. So co-creation of strategy, I think, is, is, is important moving forward. And we're seeing more and more of that, right? Um, that we're, we're, you know, that, that, that kind of... Uh, those kinds of activities are opening up strategy. The other component, by the way, that I think is missing currently from corporate strategy, that PowerPoint with bullet points, uh, you know, uh, in it uh, is, uh, you know, j just the notion of aspiration and, you know, you know, vision and, en and engagement there. I think a strategy should speak to the purpose of a company should have heart and soul, like you were saying, you know, before. And I think sometimes strategy is, you know, we're going to make the, the you know one billion dollar mark uh, by expanding our markets through direct sales. You know, that's that's not going to keep me in up on you know working on the weekends. Like I want to, how am I changing the world? How am I in, in, in impacting people's lives? Or you know, doing something that is more aspirational than just making more money for people on on Wall Street. Um, kind of thing. So I think that, you know, the notion of injecting aspiration back into strategy and making it lively um, is important too. Uh, that's, um, in, in fact, sort of on that sort of point, there was a presentation I saw you give last year 
which is about this concept of shared value. Could you could you share a little bit about what that is and I guess uh, how you came across it? Sure. Um, you know, Michael Porter. Uh, by the way, another another person that people should read. Um, he has a landmark article called uh, "What Is Strategy." Pretty good SEO on that because if you type in "What Is Strategy" in Google, you probably get that. There's a PDF of that floating around. If you get to the Harvard Business Review site, you might be blocked, but there are copies of that around. Um, it's kind of dense, um, and if, if you have insomnia, like you might want to read that one because it'll put you to sleep. But I, I recommend uh, that What Is Strategy. He's also written like the books on like the like huge thick books on things like competitive advantage and things like that. Um, so to some degree, he he was the he was the cause, you know, decades ago. He was the cause of this this closed you know closed off uh, strategy creation kind of uh, mentality of companies that only the people with the knowledge of things like um, competitive advantage could create strategy, and then you get the the PowerPoint with the bullet points back. But he recently realized, um, look, you know, observing through observations and studies that they do there. I think he's at Harvard too. Um, uh, that uh, the way that businesses are going to be profitable in the future has fundamentally changed, um, and that um, uh, that corporations are now blamed for a lot of society's woes and ills, unemployment, environmental problems, sustainability, things like that. Um, and he's saying what what we're seeing these days is is a reversal of that. That companies that are succeeding are taking those societal problems and making them the core of their business model that they're addressing, which is which is different than donations or corporate social responsibility. It's not about having a team that gives money. It's about saying that every time somebody a customer transacts with us, it's going to have a net positive uh, in, uh, good with a capital G that goes back into society as well too. So you know. Green programs, for instance, from you know hotel chain that might have a green program, things like that. Skype in the classroom. Um, there's a lot of like micro loans in you know developing com- countries and things like that. From a quote unquote classic business. Um, you know, uh, standpoint, those things don't make good business sense, you know, uh, using the classic traditional models of what good, good business is. But moving forward, that's going to be more and more important. Um, and at the core of that is looking at things like human needs and, you know, what are society's ills or, um, you know, Michael, I have this great quote from him in a video where he says, well, if you're in the financial business, let's look at what financing means to people and start our business model there. So again, kind of like jobs to be done in a slightly different context. It's about um, businesses having this kind of almost a flip in in their thinking to how to be successful and saying, we got to start with the customer and work back towards our business. I mean, and in some way, I remember when I read it, I thought, wow, in a way it's an extension of thinking, well, the user of a company could be an individual customer, but it could be a community. The environment could be a user of the company. It's a really... Uh, it doesn't actually take that much to shift that on, shift that on to our way of thinking about actually how we apply our method and process and thinking, really. Yeah, and one of the one of the users or customers of a company is also its employees. And you know, part of this shared value trend that we're seeing is people are choosing, particularly millennials, they're choosing jobs based on how well they, you know, believe the the company that they're working for is doing good, you know, back to society. So, you know, if you're a young UX designer, you know, going to work for a Monsanto might not be the first choice. Instead, you're going to work maybe for less money 
at you know a, a, a company like here in the United States, 18F, which is a, a governmental organiz- um, design agency trying to help our government be more efficient and customer centric and things like that. And you, you see you see people making those choices as as an employer. Uh, you know, I think the I think the the one of the drivers behind the notion of shared value as being the new strategic impetus moving forward is just the amount of information that people have and the transparency of information that people have these days. So if you're going to apply for a job, you can research that company. You can research like where they get their where their um, you know goods are sourced from and things like that. Uh, what their what their CEO believes and you know who she, she donated to and things like that and so so as a, as an employer or a, a employee rather or as a customer a consumer of their goods you, you know this this idea of transparency um, is now actually driving people's choices you want the the fair trade coffee right um, and people are choosing fair trade coffee over even though it costs more they're choosing that over you know not fair trade coffee or um, you know, where do I want to work? I want to work for a company that is doing, you know, good socially rather than one that is not or polluting the environment or something like that, even if I'm making less money. Um, so the choices, uh, yeah, prices will always be there and money will always be a factor. But there's this additional layer of decision making on top of it, which is a human. It's a human um, aspect. It's a human dynamic to understand how what motivates human beings. How do hum- human beings make decisions? What are the needs that people have? And again, that's right in our court. That ball's right back in our court. So I kind of see these, you know, these, these lines of business thinking, jobs to be done, disruptive innovation, shared value kind of taking off without us. Um, so I kind of lament that to some degree. And I think we need to reposition ourselves. But I also think we need to um, kind of insert ourselves into those conversations. Uh, I totally agree. The, 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 the slight worry I've always had about UX in our community, we're highly engaged, very good self-improvers talk to each other a lot <laughs> and how much we engage outside of our very specific community into you know, how how much are we talking to people in business or specifically in technology I can't, you know, the, you, I lament that as well I, I do slightly worry that actually I kind of see this moment where management consultancies might just go we'll have that Thanks very much for that one. <laughs> we'll take that. Exactly, yeah. Oh. So the one, one thing you mentioned there, and actually this is something that I'm seeing, is there's sort of been waves um, of where experience design and UX have really sort of been uh, hot. And I think B2C was that kind of first wave. I'm a B2B guy and I'm sort of living in this sort of time where B2B now is, there's a lot of investment. But this sort of business to employer, is that, is that something that you've sort of uh, seen sort of become more, uh, more important? Say it again, the business as employer? Uh, sorry, business to employee, sorry. Um, so the relation, the, uh, improving the experience of staff. Yeah, 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 absolutely. For 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 lots of different reasons. I mean, you know, the first thing that come, came to my mind was also kind of the consumerization consumerization of IT. This notion that you know, ah, the user experience of B two B applications doesn't matter. They signed the million dollar deal, and none of the users can can you know change change the product anyway. It doesn't matter. You know, the buyer and the user are completely separate entities, um, and um, you, you kind of had these 
you know, B2B ugliness that we've kind of put up with. But you're, you're starting, the, the problem is, I mean, if you just look down on your iPhone or your Android phone, you know, that B2B app is going to be right next door to a consumer, uh, right next to a, a consumer app. So from, again, this is, you know, the, the, the human centricity that I think we bring to the table is that now I'm, even though you're not in the same market, you're not competing with that consumer app because you're B2B. You're not even in the same industry or the same field. But in, the, in terms of the experience, you are competing with, with those consumer apps as well, too. So, so I think the notion of, B, of B2B um, changes in that respect, which then I think the effect is that the buying decision is now based on, well, what experience am I giving to my employees? Right. Not, not just what what deal can I get from this from this B2B provider as the buyer of, of B2B services, but rather what's going to be the net effect of that. And then there are lots of there are lots of things around efficiency. I mean, that's the typical ROI of B2B is saving time, uh, travel, you know, saving travel costs and things like that. But I think you're, what we're starting to see is another layer is. Is this a tool that people are going to spend time in uh, on a day-to-day basis? And if their choice is, I have a consumer app or a B2B app, right? Um, um, that the, the experience is part of that decision-making process now at the B2B level because people want their, their employees to have a good experience as well, too. Yeah, I work, I'm working with an organization at the moment where they've been quite smart. They've, we were having a discussion about, so how are you going to business case improving this employee experience, digital workplace experience? Yeah. And they said, look, we could go through, we could create spreadsheets to try and prove to ourselves this is going to be more efficient. But it, it's, it might be just easy to say this is the right thing to do. We're not going to attract and retain the next generation of staff yeah. if, this is not, if this is no good. And uh, yeah. that's that's a uh, that's a bit of a breakthrough, I think. Yeah, and I think you know, for me too, you know, particularly in my role at Mural, um, we we're part of that that digital workspace, um, and we contribute to that. Um, and you know, I, I, what I would love to see uh, in the near future, as soon as possible, is an attention paid to um, the di- what I call the digitally defined workspace. Um, uh, um, remote work is is on the rise. Um, everything that we do is digitized anyway. So we actually spend more time in our digital workspaces, um, computer, Skype, Box, uh, you know, uh, project management tools, things like that. Um, Skype uh, using those tools than we than we do interacting with our colleagues face to face. Um, yet at the same time, we you know businesses are creating these elaborate um, office spaces with beanbag chairs and free lunch and all that kind of stuff to attract employees. And you better believe that if you have one of those um, you know new cool office spaces, that, that that's a recruiting uh, tool, right? That they bring those candidates in and say, look, here's what you get: you get a basketball court and free lunch and all that kind of stuff. I would love that same kind of effect to, to come from the digitally defined workspace that you, you're attracting people, employees, because you say, look at this cool set of tools that you get. To, we have the most modern tools as well, too, because right now um, the collection of digital tools that we use as employees within our companies is just kind of haphazard. It's like whatever comes together. And, you know, I've worked at companies where we had like five different chat programs. And depending on who I was talking to, I would use a different chat program. And then you can't find anything because you're using an intranet and Dropbox and all these other things, you know. And, and there's nobody looking after that side of things. So this digital workplace is really just kind of haphazard and almost the Wild West, 
right now, where at the same time we're spending, you know, companies are spending millions of dollars on these cool office spaces. I would like to almost see that inverted and say, hey, we got this cool digital workspace. And that plays into your B2B um, um, argument that I was talking about as well, too, that buying software, uh, not just because it's efficient and you can calculate the ROI, like you're saying, but it's going to be it's going to be attractive and cool and, and a great experience for the employees that will actually draw people in because they want to work with those tools, right? Oh, well, I mean, certainly in collaborating with some of our clients, we've actually had that moment with them using Mural, so I totally recommend that. As, a, as an experience design strategist, I guess what excites you most about the future, Jim? Um, you know, I think, I think it is this potential, this potential intersection of what used to be classic you know, business thinking in terms of strategy and and uh, you know uh, 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 an explicit pain you know attention being paid to customers and users and and where those two overlap so jobs to be done shared value i think for me are kind of two shining examples of what is actually happening these aren't these aren't things in the future or theoretical the, you know th- this is what's going on in business these days and to some degree i kind of feel like we're we're missing out on that um, and I think to some degree it's, it's our own fault. I think UX, the label UX, has gotten smaller. At least when I got into the field 20 years ago, UX meant everything. And somewhere along the line, then CX came along and said, no, we're, we're taking over this part of it. And, you know, service design was always kind of there, but that kind of took over it. And UX is now becoming UX slash UI. In fact, you see job descriptions, UX slash UI. And UX is starting to mean... There's nothing more depressing than saying that ad like that. What's that? There's nothing more depressing than saying uh, that. Right, because what it does is it reduces UX to the design of digital product interfaces. That's, and that's it. Um, whereas, like I was saying, you know, 20 years ago, for me, UX was everything. So I think the term UX actually holds us back. I think our own skills hold, skill sets hold us back as well, too. And I don't want to say I've, I've cracked that nut, but um, we've been banging our fist on the table, uh, on the table that we need a seat at, the, at that table um, and I think we, I think there are some opportunities, but I'm not sure if we're we're developed enough as a as a field um, in general to to actually um, deliver on you know what what you need to have to be have a seat at that table as well too. I think I think we can do it. And some in other uh, design disciplines like industrial design, they they have they are a little more advanced than than UX in that respect as well too. Showing business value, showing how they contribute to the bottom line, and things like that. Um, but I think it's it's that intersection of where where UX design and um, business come, uh, and I think I think um, you know looking at looking at experience as its own kind of component of strategy is important. Not not UX slash UI experience, but the the uh, the human experience. Yeah. You, you know, looking at that. So I think I think I think that's where I think the future is moving towards this this notion of experience design in and of itself. Uh, and the qualification, customer experience, user experience doesn't matter. It's human experience and what value that brings to a business and, and w- how those things intersect. That's, that's where I see things going. And I hope, I hope we're, we continue to be more and more part of the conversation. Me too. Jim, that's all we've got time for today. But um, thanks so much for your time and thoughts. It was a really, really enjoyable chat. And hopefully we'll get to speak in the future. Well, I'm sure we will, Tim. It's always a pleasure to, to speak with you. I look forward to seeing you in Boulder. And I, you know, I, hope, I hope that was uh, some good, good thoughts or, or content or ideas for your listeners. Absolutely. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, everybody.